Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to have you with us this morning at the Vista. We are really glad that you are here. If you're new to the Vista, you are joining us at a great time. Today, we're starting a new uh, sermon series called Chasing the Wind. We are going to be in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to grab those and turn to Ecclesiastes, we're going to be walking through this little Old Testament book for a few months. We're going to be kind of leading up to Easter. Uh, this, is, this is where we're going to camp out. So while you're finding Ecclesiastes, I want to mention a couple of things really quick. Um, first of all is that you might notice uh, this service um, is a little bit full. If you walk in a little late, sometimes it can be hard to find a seat or a, a group of seats all together. Um, I just wanted to, we occasionally like to just mention that if you uh, need a little elbow room and you want less trouble finding a seat, Right now, our 11.30 service has a little bit more room than our, than our first two. And so, again, just do with that information what you will. But we offer all the same Vista Kids classes during the third one that we offer during the first two. And um, again, we have a little bit more room in, in that service. Um, and also, uh, parking would probably be a little easier in that service as well. So, um, just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Also, um, we often say this, especially when we're starting a new series, but... We, we try uh, and we like to have some diversity in our teaching here at Vista. And so what that means is sometimes we're going to do a topical series, uh, much like we did through January um, with our and series. Sometimes we're going we're to think of and pray through maybe there's a particular topic or a particular issue uh, or set of issues that we want to address. And so we'll do some topical uh, series. Um, other times we may follow the church calendar. Uh, particularly around holidays like Christmas, Advent, Easter, um, and, and then um, other times we're going to walk through books of the Bible together. And so whenever we do a book of the Bible, we also like to provide a, a reading plan so that you can follow along in the reading or even read ahead a little bit if you'd like to, uh, a day-by-day, week-by-week plan. And so we have a reading plan to go along with Ecclesiastes. If you would like to find that, you can go to our website under uh, Rule of Life, um, under the Rule of Life tab, you'll see a link there to uh, a reading plan for Ecclesiastes. Um, and you can, we would encourage you to, to do that and to read along as we walk through this, this Old Testament book. Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. I don't know how many of you have read it. If you've read it, you probably, as you'll see in a little bit, it can be rather depressing, right? Like you can read Ecclesiastes and be like, man, well, that's not fun at all, right? It's, uh, it can be rather depressing, uh, the author is asking some really important questions, however, questions that are very timely and I would say timeless. Um, we live in a day and age where it seems like, at least the perception from most people, is that the trajectory of our world is not great. And so what happens is that causes a lot of anxiety. Anxiety and depression are huge. Um, more, more, more people uh, struggle with anxiety and depression uh, now than than. Uh, reportedly at any time in in history of the world. Um, And so the author of Ecclesiastes is asking some very important questions that people still ask today. He's seeking answers to things like, what's the meaning of life? What is this all about? Why are we all here? Okay. And so again, it's a timely and rather timeless book. And we're going to walk through this uh, together. And so what I'm going to do, I want to give you a little heads up. I'm going to read verse one. And then I'm going to talk for a little bit in setting it up about the author and, and, and kind of um, introduction to the series for just a little bit uh, about, about the life of this man named Solomon. Um, and I'm only giving you that heads up because if, if I read one verse and then spend like, you know, 
15 minutes talking about that one verse, some of you are gonna freak out and be like, oh dear Lord, how are we ever gonna get through this book, right? Uh, they're not all gonna be like that, right? I'll, I'll move a little quicker, but I just wanted to give you a little, little heads up, okay? Um, here's the way Ecclesiastes starts. It says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So for much of church history, the unquestioned author of Ecclesiastes uh, was Solomon, the son of David, who was king in Jerusalem, okay? And again, for much of church history, that wasn't even, wasn't even questioned. No one really thought to question it until about the 16th century or so when Martin Luther, um, early church reformer, he began to question whether Solomon could be the author or the sole author of Ecclesiastes. And he cited some different reasons why he didn't think that that could be the case. Since Luther, then other scholars, um, more modern scholars, have taken that and there is some question as to whether uh, Solomon, the son of David, is the actual author of the book. And so there's a lot of things they'll point to, and I'll try not to bore you with all the details and all the stuff that I read this week that 90% of you will care nothing about. Um, but essentially, there are some grammatical things that would point to the fact that, that Solomon may not have written this. There are some things alluded to in the book that some scholars would say Solomon could not have possibly known in his lifetime. Um, we know that Solomon wrote several other books of the Bible, like Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, as well as Proverbs. And so they would say uh, literary, it doesn't, it doesn't match up. Writing style and some other things don't completely line up. And so there is some question then as to whether Solomon wrote that. Then you can go read people that believe Solomon wrote it and they have a way to explain away all of those questions and doubts. And um, so basically to kind of sum up, here's what I would say as what I think are the two most likely scenarios as to authorship, okay? One is that Solomon did write it but that it was uh, put together, compiled sometime after his death. And often when they would compile something after someone's death, uh, they would maybe edit it a little bit. There would be some edits. They would maybe uh, tweak the grammar just a bit to make it readable for their audience currently. And so it wasn't unusual where something was compiled after someone's death, but there were some tweaks and changes um, in that process um, uh, accounting for some of those things. So that's one possibility. Solomon is the author, but it was put together after Solomon died. The other possibility is that Solomon did not write this, but clearly it was someone who knew and studied Solomon's life, Solomon's pursuits, and they clearly want us to learn lessons from Solomon's life. And so it was also fairly customary to where if you wanted something read uh, in, in a, in a far-reaching, you wanted to have a farther reach with your work, you might sort of assume the identity of someone else, okay? And so um, if just random, some random guy uh, writes this, no one's gonna wanna read it. But if he could say, oh, this is, make it look like this is from Solomon, everyone knew who Solomon was, <clears throat> it would have gotten a greater circulation. Clearly the author wants, he's sort of taking on the persona um, he's identifying as Solomon, again, son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's only one person that fits that description, right? And so there's a couple possibilities there. Um, again, at the end of the day, whether you believe it was Solomon that actually wrote it or whether you believe it was not Solomon, but someone that wants us to learn lessons from the life of Solomon who studied Solomon's life and then sort of took on that identity. Um, either way, um, the big idea is that there's lessons we need to learn from the life of this man. And so before we go any further, I want to just take a minute and talk about Solomon, all right? 
His story is found in 1 Kings chapters 2 through 11. Uh, We're not going to turn there and read that, but uh, if you, in addition to the Ecclesiastes reading plan, if you'd like to learn about Solomon, read about Solomon's life, you can read 1 Kings chapters 2 through 11. I know some of you are overachievers, you like extra credit, Uh, you're the kids in school that ruined the curve for the rest of us, that's okay. Go ahead and read 1 Kings chapters 2 through 11. And you can learn a lot about about Solomon and about his life and about the different sort of turns and twists and trajectory that his life took. That's where you'll find his story. He was the son of King David. King David was the most prominent and popular king in all of the history of Israel. Okay, the most famous king, probably the most famous character in in all of the Old Testament, or at least right up there with, with a few others, okay? His mother was Bathsheba. You might remember the story of David and Bathsheba and how they got together. Well, later they had... Uh, Solomon was their, was their son, and um, on David's deathbed, he appoints Solomon to be the king. Another one of David's sons had tried to assume the kingship, and David on his deathbed said, no, no, Solomon is to be king, and he anointed and he appointed Solomon to be the king. And then he, you know, he instructs Solomon to seek the Lord, to follow the Lord, to obey the Lord, to walk according to the law of Moses, to be a good king. And David starts off really, I mean, Solomon starts off really, really well. He starts off seeking to, trying to do that, but then ultimately he makes some compromises in his life that we'll read about and we'll learn about. And ultimately he, he kind of lives a bit of a selfish life. Everything's kind of about Solomon. At one point, Solomon asks God for something. Actually, God comes to Solomon and says, you can ask for one thing. And, and the one thing Solomon asks for is wisdom. And this pleased God because Solomon didn't ask for power and wealth and all these other things that a lot of times people would think to ask for. Solomon asked for wisdom and this was seen as a really good thing and God was pleased by this and so God gives Solomon wisdom. He's known as the most wise king, the most wise man that's ever lived. Other kings and rulers, they would travel and seek Solomon out because he would give wise counsel and advice. He was very discerning. Solomon was known as a really wise man. He wrote, again, several books of the Bible. The first one was probably Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. It was written to and about his first wife. And it's kind of known as a book of uh, romantic, some would say erotic kind of love. Like, let's just say Song of Solomon's not the book. Like, if you're going to walk through a book of the Bible with your children at bedtime, Song of Solomon's not the book, right? That's that's not the one you're going to say, no, let's read Song of Solomon together. That's not a good idea, right? It's not PG, okay? That was the first one that he wrote, okay? Then he writes Proverbs a little bit later in life. Proverbs, some of you are familiar with Proverbs, or at least some of the Proverbs. Very wise statements, wise sayings written by Solomon. And then if you believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, this would have been written towards the end of his life. Um, or again, after his death, someone else wrote it about the, the, the totality of his life and his, and his pursuits. And like I said, Solomon began really, really well. His life began well, his kingship began well. He, he was a worshiper of God, seeking after God. But again, he, he compromised in some areas that he probably thought at the time were not that big of a deal. And ultimately they led to some major areas of sin and disobedience in his life. A couple of those, he implemented some pagan practices. Some idolatry began to creep in. He married pagan women. Uh, Typically and usually in a lot of cases, it was because it was politically strategic. He would, uh, 
it, it would be almost like if, you, if you, you marry the daughter of another king and it, would, it, was like a, it was like a transaction. It was the way to kind of seal a transaction. And so he ended up marrying a lot of pagan women that God had said you were not to do. And, and Solomon, of course, does that. In fact, we, we read that by the end of his life, we're told that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, which are basically like girlfriends. You can kind of figure out what the purpose of them was, right? Now, uh, God, there's a lot to say there. 700 wives, that's, that's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, there are some scholars, as you read, that say, well, clearly that's embellished. Like there's no way he had a thousand women. And so again, two scenarios here that some would point to. Some would say, well, if it's Solomon that is writing, clearly he's being like a typical guy and embellishing a little bit, right? Like, oh, I had 700, I had a thousand women. Okay, sure you did, buddy. Like there's some that think he's embellishing a little bit. Um, others would say that as you look into the math, scholars would say that when it was sort of edited, they, they might have... Uh, they might've added a zero there on the end of some of that. And so some people would say most likely Solomon had like 70 wives and maybe 30 concubines to which I would say, that's still a lot, man. That's a, that's a lot of in-laws, right? That's a lot. I don't know what you do with that, right? That's, I'm supposed to be a wise man. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I get asked that question a lot, right? Like how could Solomon, who's supposed to be the wisest man that's ever lived, make some really foolish decisions? That's a legit question. Solomon is, again, we're told in scripture that he was wise, that God gave him wisdom, that he was more wise than anyone else. And yet, as you read about his life, and we're gonna see a lot of it in Ecclesiastes, man, he did some really dumb stuff. Like, why would such a wise man do that? And I'm always reminded when I look at Solomon's life, I'm reminded that just because we possess wisdom doesn't mean we always walk in the wisdom that we possess, right? And, and that seems to be Solomon's story. Solomon was indeed wise. He was a guy that could give counsel to a lot of other people. He could tell other people to walk in wisdom and he could really, uh, you know, he could he'd give wise decisions and choices for them, but he didn't always live by the wisdom that he possessed for himself. In other words, it wasn't that Solomon made some poor choices because Solomon didn't know whether it was right or wrong. Solomon had the wisdom to know and to understand and all the knowledge that he needed. And yet he chose to do some things that, that he knew he should not do. And before we judge Solomon too harshly, I think if we're honest, like if there was nobody else in the room and it was just you in front of a mirror, most of us in the room would have to go, yeah, I, I, I kind of tend to do that too, right? Like the stuff that we do that we know we shouldn't do, like it's not because we don't know that we shouldn't do it most of the time. Most of the time it's like, yeah, we, we know we probably shouldn't, but we, we still do. And that's exactly what Solomon did. He was wise. He had a lot of wisdom from the Lord. The Bible says wisdom's a good thing. In fact, James tells us later that if you lack wisdom, you should ask God for wisdom and that God will give wisdom in his goodness. And so wisdom, again, God was very pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom and God gave him wisdom. But sometimes we just have to learn to walk in the wisdom that we, that we have. And that's what Solomon didn't seem to do. At the end of the day, Solomon's life teaches us some things. One of the big lessons is that it teaches us that you can't, you really can't manage your sin. Solomon thought that with all his wisdom, he could manage his sin, that his sin, he could kind of keep it in check. And the problem is, we've said this before, but the problem with sin is that it never stays put, right? It never stays hidden. It never stays where you want it to stay. It tends to grow and fester and become a really, really big deal. And if you'll compromise in small areas of your life, pretty soon you'll be compromising in some large areas of your life. And that's what Solomon did. His, it led to a lot of sin and a lot of disobedience.
Also, a lot of the choices that Solomon made, they were because it was because it was politically strategic and it was what would please most people. And again, the lesson for us is that what is most popular and what pleases the most people out there isn't always what is right and what God says that we should do. So there's a lot of kind of big picture things that we could look at Solomon's life and hopefully learn some lessons from from his life. But basically, Ecclesiastes, it is written as sort of a diary or a journal that is chronicling the pursuits that Solomon pursued, the things Solomon pursued in order to find meaning and purpose in life. Solomon is going to use his wealth, his power, his wisdom, his knowledge. He is going to use every tool at his disposal and he is going to search for meaning and purpose in this life. He is going to leave no stone unturned in his pursuit, in his search for meaning and purpose in this life. And so let's see how that goes for our boy Solomon, all right? Verse two. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that's not real encouraging, is it? Right? It's kind of giving away the whole thing right there in verse two. This word vanity is used 38 times in, in this particular book, in the book of Ecclesiastes. 38 times, five times in just this one verse alone. And this word can mean, again, like vapor, meaningless, empty, Solomon is saying, look, I I have searched all over and all of my pursuits and all the things I've gone after. And at the end of the day, he's saying, it's all pointless. It's worthless. It's empty. It's like vapor. We'll read a little bit further. In verse three, he says, well, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? So he's talking about work, our work and our endeavors in life. He says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises and the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around the wind goes and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea's not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Man, this sounds like a guy that's really frustrated with life, doesn't it? He's just really frustrated with life. He's like going, man, what's the point? What's the point of everything that we do? I mean, some of you, yeah, that's, a, that's a legit question, right? Anybody ever feel like that? Like you, you, you get up and you, you do the same thing day after day after day and you go to work and you come home and you do whatever with the kids or with your spouse. Like you just, you just feel like you're kind of in a rut, man. Life is like this big rut and you go through the motions day after day after day. You ever see like a hamster on a wheel? It's like moving really fast and working really hard, but it's just spent not going anywhere, not really accomplishing anything. This is the way Solomon views life right here, right? It's you and I, man. We just, we just get up and we hop on the wheel. And man, we are working hard and we are spinning and we are going and we are expending energy and effort and all this stuff and chasing after the wind. And we're all working really hard, but we're not going anywhere. He said, life is like a big rut. Anybody ever feel like that? It's like a rut, man. Like we tend to be creatures of habit, don't we? Most of us have a routine. Most days look the same. In the first service, I used the example of this, like most of you that are in this service, I'm going to guess that this service is the one you normally come to. Is that, am I right? Most of you, you tend to be, I'm a 1015 service. Why is that? Like we don't tell you which service you have to come to, right? 
We don't assign services. I can take it beyond that. Like most of you that are in this service, I'm gonna guess you're probably sitting somewhere close to where you normally sit, right? If you're like a front row person, you like to get here early to get the, ba- the back row and the balcony, right? Yeah. Most of you, most of you tend to sit in the, we don't assign seats. We don't say you need to sit right here. But most of the time, we tend to be creatures of habit, right? Routine. Most of you have the, you get up at the same, your alarm goes off at the same time every morning or weekdays. You, you, you know, whatever, you get up, I, I make coffee, I do this, I do that, I get the kids out the door. Most of us, we just, this is what Solomon's noticing, right? Solomon is noticing the mundane routine of life and he's frustrated by it. He's frustrated by it all. We just seem to go through the motions. We're the hamsters on the wheel. We're spinning and spinning and spinning and all our lives and nature, it's all seems to be kind of pointless. Um, I would love to tell you that the rest of the chapter gets better. It really doesn't. (laughs) Here we go, verse eight. He says, all things are full of weariness. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there any, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It it has been already in the ages before us. He notices here that in addition to the rut that we get in, he's gonna notice that we're never really satisfied, are we? He's gonna say, man, like, we're, we're never, as much as we attain and as much as we do, we're never really satisfied. We're never really full. Again, I use the example of kids. Like if you have children, you know, you know that they're never really satisfied, are they? Right? Um, my youngest son, Pax, all year last year, he asked for a hoverboard for Christmas. And that's this thing with like, it's got two wheels and you got to get on it and you kind of balance. His older brother used to have one that broke. And so he was like, I want a hoverboard. I want a hoverboard. Like we need more things in our house where we can break our neck. That's what we need. And so he wanted a hoverboard. And we finally got him a hoverboard for Christmas. And he was excited for a few weeks. For a few weeks, he loved that thing. He doesn't ride it. It's like, it's like a month removed from Christmas. You know what? Now he comes home from a friend's house and he's like, dad, I, want, I, I don't even remember the name of it, but it's, it's basically, uh, it's another thing where you could easily break your neck, maybe more easily break your neck. It, instead of having two wheels, it's got one wheel that you balance on and ride. I don't even know what it's called, but that's the new thing now. That's what he wants. I'm like, we just, we just got you the hoverboard. And he's like, I know, but, but I want this thing now, right? Uh, Legos. I got three boys. So you can imagine, we have a tub of Legos in our house, a tub. And yet when they go to the store, can I get a new Lego set? What, what could you possibly want to build that you can't build with the tub of Legos we have at our house? Like I've stepped on all those Legos. Like we've got a lot of Legos in the Jeffrey's house. We don't need more Legos, but they always want more Legos. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Kids still, are, they're already done playing with their Christmas gifts. They want something else. And what Solomon is noticing is that doesn't really get any better as we get older. Solomon's going, you know, you get a house, guess what? I need more square footage. I need a bigger house. I need a bigger house. I need a bigger walk-in closet to put more of my stuff. The big walk-in closet I have is not big enough. I want to be able, not I want to just walk in it. I want to be able to like run track in it. Like I want to, I want to, I want to be able to put everything in my, in my walk-in closet, right? We get a car, you get a truck, you get like, oh, it's nice for a while, but you're like, I got to get a nicer, newer, bigger. This truck over here that my friend has, it's got more bells and whistles than my truck. And so I need better. I need bigger. We get a job. 
a career even. We get a raise every now and then. And what do we want? Well, I sure hope I get another raise next year. I need another raise. I need more. I need, you know, and I could go on and on, right? I've talked to, I have a friend that's like, he's really into to hunting and guns and he's got like an arsenal at his house, like a complete walk-in, like, I mean, just ridiculous amount of, and he's, guess what? He's always like going to gun, like, I gotta get, I need some more guns. I'm like, what? Are you like fixing to attack like Canada? Like, I, what are we, why do you need this many guns? I don't understand. Like, it's just the, the condition of our heart where we're just never satisfied with what we have. And Solomon's noticing this and he's like, look, man, no matter what we get, no matter what we attain, it's never, it's never enough. We're never satisfied, never satisfied. In verse 11, he says, there is no remembrance of former things, there, uh, nor will there be a remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So we've talked about this before. Solomon's basically going, look, we're all going to live our life. We're going to work really hard. We're going to spin our wheels. We're going to get on the wheel and, and run as fast as we can. At the end of the day, we're going to die and nobody's going to remember us. Happy Sunday, right? Like, you know, I know we're all feeling really encouraged right now, but that's just true. I've said it before, man, like a few generations from now, nobody's going to even know your name. And I, again, I, I've used this illustration before, but I mean, most of us don't even know the name of like our great, great, great grandfather. We don't even know his name. He might have accomplished some really cool stuff. We have no idea. And this is what Solomon's noticing about life. He's just noticing these things about life. In verse 12, he says, I, the preacher, uh, he said, I, I've been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And he says, I applied my heart, applied my heart. So I'd remind you that in the Old Testament, when it talks about the heart, it's talking about the mind, the will, the emotions, the very center, the very core of your being, all that you are. He says, I have applied my heart, all that I am, to seek out and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So under the sun, in this world, I've sought for all of it. I've left no stone unturned in seeking meaning and fulfillment. And he says, look, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity, a striving after or chasing the wind. That's what he's, that's, that's his conclusion. He recognizes in verse 15, what is crooked. He looks at what's wrong with the world. What is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart that I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. And he wraps up verse 1 by saying, For in, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge is in, increases in sorrow. He says, man, even, even all the knowledge and the wisdom that we can attain, even having all of that, he says, man, you get more, more knowledge and wisdom and, and guess what? Then you're more aware of how broken and messed up the world is that you can't fix and even that leads to more sorrow. It's incredibly frustrating, incredibly frustrating. So again, we can read Ecclesiastes and man, I know you can, it, it can be a real downer, right? Like you can read it and just be like, well, now I'm depressed. Thanks very much, right? <laughs> or, or maybe there's a little encouragement in it because you can kind of go, that's how I feel sometimes. Like maybe I'm not the only one that has questions like that. I'm not the only one who thinks that way. I'm not the only one that feels like I'm in a rut. 
I'm not the only one that asks questions like, why are we here and what's the purpose of all of this? Like on some level, I don't know, I feel like it's a little bit encouraging to go, yeah, I felt this way. And there's a, there's a dude in the Bible that felt this way. And without trying to kind of give away, and we're going to talk about some different things the, the rest of the book that we, that we walk through, but I would, just, I would just say this, that the author of Ecclesiastes, whether you believe it was Solomon or someone else, they recognize the problem of the world, but they don't have answers for it. They recognize that the world is marred and stained and broken by sin. That's really what they're recognizing. They're recognizing the futility that we live in and how everything seems to be marred and fractured and broken by sin. The problem is they're frustrated because they just can't fix it and they don't know what to do about it. And then hundreds of years after this book is written, there's a man named Jesus that steps on the scene. And Jesus ultimately God in the flesh he that was not under the sun comes under the sun into our world and he lives a perfect sinless life that you and I could never live so that he can be the once for all sinless sacrifice on behalf of us something has to pay for our sin something has to take care of that futility Jesus comes and Jesus does that and he goes to a cross and he dies on that cross and then three days later he gets up and he walks out of the grave and he conquers Satan's sin and death once and for all. And ultimately what Jesus is doing is he is giving our lives meaning and purpose. He's giving our lives meaning and purpose. He's restoring that, that this life is not all that there is. It's not all that there is. And so while Solomon or whoever wrote Ecclesiastes sees the problem and can't fix it, God knew the problem also and he brought Jesus to fix it. Jesus is the one that had the answers. And I think one of the overarching lessons, there's a few big lessons of Ecclesiastes that we'll kind of be re- reiterating throughout the, throughout the study. But the big one from chapter one is that everything we pursue in this life everything we pursue in this life to try to sort of bridge the gap between us and God or to fill the void that is in here, all of those pursuits are gonna be empty pursuits. It's gonna be chasing after the wind. That's it. Solomon was a man that had more wealth than you and I could ever possibly have. More wealth. I mean, you could read in in 1 Kings about the amounts of gold and silver and jewels and I mean, he just had, most of us can dream, we can dream about winning the lottery or inheriting a bunch of money and like it pales in comparison to the amount of wealth and possessions that Solomon had. He actually lived it. He had it all. He had power and authority. He was king during, uh, during a time when, when Israel was kind of at its peak, man. His, his kingdom stretched far and wide. He had ultimate a power and authority. He had more power and authority than you and I will ever have in this life. He had more possessions. He had more, he sought and and had more pleasure. He threw these epic, massive parties we'll read about. Most of these things you and I can dream about, we can fantasize about, but Solomon is a guy that actually lived it. He actually did all that stuff and his life is a bit of a lesson for us because while we can spend our lives hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about those things, Solomon is a lesson for a guy that actually attained it and he's still going, It's empty, guys. It's just empty. It's worthless. It's chasing after the wind. You can attain it all that this world has to offer. And the lesson of Ecclesiastes is that you will not be satisfied apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't. 
Because at the end of the day, all that's really gonna matter is Christ and his kingdom. It's Christ and his kingdom. Our own little kingdoms, our own little possessions, all the stuff we can muster, all that stuff is gonna leave us feeling like Solomon. Empty, void, meaningless, pointless. Depressed, anxious, sorrowful. But Jesus brings life and he brings hope and he brings peace. He brings the satisfaction and the fulfillment and every pursuit apart from him and his kingdom is just gonna leave us feeling like Solomon. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are grateful for your word and we're grateful, Father, that um, God, your word is just brutally honest. That your word sometimes asks some questions that we all ask from time to time. And God, as um, in some ways tragic as Solomon's life turned out to be, we are grateful for this man and this life because he, he has a lot to teach us and a lot to show us about what is really worth our pursuit. So Father, I pray that we, as your children, as your church, as your people, that we would learn some lessons from the life of Solomon. That we would not imitate or repeat his mistakes, but God, we could learn from those mistakes. From a man that actually attained much of which he sought out to pursue and still found it all to be meaningless, God. I know there are some people here today in our church, in our community, in our world that are, man, they're, they're on the wheel and they're just chasing all this world has to offer. And they're pursuing all of this stuff in hopes that it will bring some fulfillment and some satisfaction and some joy. And God, I pray today they would realize that all of those pursuits are gonna leave them feeling empty. Remind us today, God, that you are the only thing. Relationship with you and your kingdom, building your kingdom is the only pursuit that's gonna matter at the end of the day. So help us to remain focused, Jesus, on you. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you went to a cross, that you died on that cross in our place for our sin, that you rose again three days later, conquering Satan's sin and death. We thank you for this thing today in Jesus' name. Amen.